Well, this evening we come to Psalm 88. And this is a psalm unlike the majority of other psalms. It's actually a psalm unlike most of what we find in Scripture. Uh, And this is because Psalm 88 deals with the reality of human suffering in a very distinctive way. Oftentimes in the Psalms and in the scriptures, we find people who are suffering, crying out to God, even accusing God perhaps as we will see in Psalm 88. But most of the time when we see this, uh, we see at the end that the psalmist reminds themselves of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness. You know, the common refrain, hope in God for I shall again praise him or something to that effect. Psalm 88 doesn't end on a hopeful note. In fact, Psalm 88 is one of only two psalms in the canon that ends on a note of hopelessness. Psalm 88 and Psalm 39 are those two. And this is why Psalm 88 has been called one of the saddest psalms, because it ends in darkness. You've probably heard the old saying, life is tough and then you die. It's a very bleak outlook on life, right? And in many ways, this psalm has a bleak outlook. But there's much more to it than that. This psalm is not meant to discourage you, but it is meant to encourage you to to speak to God in the midst of your discouragement. One of the things that I've mentioned before about the psalms is that they are, in fact, a mirror for us. In the Psalms, we find God-ordained words to sing and to pray. And so the challenge tonight as we study God's word is to discover how Psalm 88 fits into that picture. How does the Psalm shape our prayer life when we experience suffering? How does the Psalm give us words to pray when a loved one dies or when we receive a bad health diagnosis? How can we pray when we're overcome with financial burdens or everything that we have worked so hard for is seemingly disappearing from our grasp? Well, here's the main takeaway that I want you to to hold on to this evening. Darkness and suffering may last a lifetime, but as God's people, as his children, we can always cry out to God throughout our pain and darkness even when it feels like he isn't listening to our pleas. That's the main point of Psalm 88. Our suffering may never end in this life, but God always hears our prayers, even if he doesn't answer them in the ways that we think that he should answer our prayers. Uh, Now we're gonna study Psalm 88 this way uh, this evening. We're gonna go through the psalm, look at it verse by verse. Then we're gonna see how it connects to Christ. Uh, And then lastly, I want to think about a couple of ways that Psalm 88 affects the life of the Christian. So let's start at the beginning of the psalm. One of the first things I want you to notice about the psalm is the introduction, the heading. The psalm is called a song. It's called a psalm. uh, And it's also called a maskeel. Uh, in our ESV. Uh, now, now, as a song and as a psalm, this, this functions as a corporate prayer. It indicates the communal aspect of this plea. 
And that might, that might sound strange to you, right? Because this is the prayer of an individual man who is suffering, a dying man, if you will. But for God's covenant people, Israel, this psalm was incorporated into the life of the church, into her worship. Uh, and this psalm is also called a maskil in Hebrew there in our heading. And that just indicates to us that this psalm is for our instruction, for our meditation, for teaching. In other words, it instructs our lives. It's a, it's a signpost, a question marker in the Hebrew asking, will you listen to what this psalm teaches? Will you allow it to instruct your heart? Now look with me at verse one. The psalmist begins this way. O Lord, God of my salvation. Now this is a fascinating beginning considering the rest of the psalm. You might say that this is really the only positive note that we, we hear in the psalm. And while the rest of, of Psalm 88 addresses the experience of suffering, this verse acknowledges God as the God who saves. So right from the beginning of the psalm, we have what you might call a, a, an instance or example of cognitive dissonance. The current experience of this suffering person doesn't align with what they know to be true about God. And right from the get-go, this is important for us as we learn to pray amidst dark times. Even though our experience of God's providence may be dark in a particular season of life, we approach him with the knowledge and the reality that he is in fact the God of our salvation. So verses one through five are really the plea of a suffering and desperate soul. The psalmist cries out day and night. He pleads with God to incline his ear. His soul is full of trouble. His life draws near to Sheol, verse three, which in this context just means uh, the place of the dead. He is like the dead, he says, like those whom God remembers no more, verse five. And verse five uh, reveals to us a theologically acute experience of suffering. The psalmist feels as though God's promises are void. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll remember that God is described as the God who remembers his covenant. He remembers his covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He remembers his promises and relents from wiping out the people of Israel. God is a God who remembers his covenant promises and he is steadfast. And the psalmist here is saying, in my darkness, I am not experiencing God as a God who remembers right now. My experience is like those who have been forgotten by God. Now we don't find a description of the particular ailment that uh, the psalmist is suffering from. Uh, It's likely that he was suffering from some kind of bodily or or physical ailment. That's uh, the main theory here. But the important bit about verses one through five is that there is something ironic here. There's irony that we find in the text. Even though the psalmist cries out to the Lord and feels as though God has forgotten him, he still prays. 
In other words, this is a prayer, this is a prayer accusing God, accusing God of forsaking him, accusing God of not hearing his prayer, and yet he still prays. You see the irony? This is a a model of prayer for us, a template of prayer, if you will. Think of, of Job, a man who intimately knew sorrow and grief. He had everything from a worldly perspective, all the material blessings that one could could ask for. And yet when he was stripped of it, his family, his home, his friends, he remained steadfast in crying out to God. And this is what we are to take away is that like Job, in the midst of our suffering, Faith looks like crying out to God, even if we are questioning God's dealings with us, as the psalmist is here. Think about how Job, or how God answers Job out of the whirlwind at the end of his affliction. God comes to Job and confounds him for attempting to understand God's providential ways. But God also commends Job for his faithfulness. Job didn't curse God as Satan was hoping. Job instead brought everything before God in prayer and supplication. And this is a vital insight for us in these first few verses. Seek the Lord. Seek him in prayer, even if you're uncertain of how to address him or what to say. The Spirit intercedes for us even when our words fail us. Now we also discover something about the providence of God in this psalm. Look with me at verses six through eight. You have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made them a horror. You have made me a horror to them. Essentially here the psalmist is saying, God, you have caused my suffering. You were the source of my pain. And we probably hear that and are thinking to ourselves, does does God really cause our suffering? Well, here's the truth of the matter. God is never the agent or the source of evil in this world. God cannot be the source or agent of evil things because he is perfectly holy and good. But how do we deal with this accusation in our text? It sounds like God has caused suffering and pain. Well, this is the psalmist's experience of God's providence in his life. And whether or not the psalmist is speaking rightly about God in this instance The important thing is that he is crying out in the face of his suffering. And and we can actually learn that while God is not the agent of evil in this world, nothing, nothing is outside the sphere of his control. And I believe that the psalmist actually recognizes this, that nothing is outside of God's control. He recognizes this in attributing these events to God. No tragic event in the psalmist's life up until this point has been outside of God's control. Through dark depression, verse six, 
or when his friends forsake him. Verse 8, God holds us together in his hands. There's actually a hymn uh, in our Trinity hymnals uh, with a lyric that I think summarizes the experience of the psalmist here reflecting on God's providence. Uh, It's number 128 in our hymnals uh, entitled God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Uh, And the lyric, I think it's verse four, I find it uh, very moving. It goes like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now when we hold, when we hold up this lyric against the backdrop of Psalm 88 verses 6 through 8, we see this is the experience of the psalmist, experiencing the frowning providence, if you will. His experience of God's providence has been tough. He doesn't understand why God has seemingly abandoned him. But the very fact that he continues to cry out to God reveals that he trusts in God in an ultimate sense. Even though he feels like right now God's providence has been frowning against him, he knows that in the end, God is the God of his salvation. Verse one. Psalm 88 continues in verse nine. Every day the suffering man cries out. He's in tears. And then he asks a series of rhetorical questions that all have uh, an implied negative. Verses 10 through 12. Basically asking, God, are you praised among the dead? Abaddon in verse 11 there, that simply means the place of destruction. These rhetorical questions are are a plea from the suffering, dying man for God to act in his life, in the life of a living person. He's saying, God, you are not the God of the dead, but of the living. It's a plea for God to act while he's still alive. And again, in verse 13, we see this ironic note. The psalm is a lament. It's a complaint against God for not hearing the prayer of the one who's suffering. And yet this suffering man is still praying. Oh, that in our darkness we would have this kind of courage to pour out our hearts to God rather than turn away from him. Now verses 14 through 18 are a somber and grave ending. Uh, And I'm going, going going to read through these verses and I want you to really feel the weight of this suffering person. I want you to feel the weight because chances are that there's someone sitting next to you in the pew who is either feeling this right now, the weight of this kind of suffering, or has experienced this kind of darkness in the past. So I'll read through verses 14 uh, through 18. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Now, as I mentioned earlier, This is only one of two psalms 
that ends this way ends in hopelessness. There's no mention of how God's steadfast love overcomes our suffering. It ends in darkness. In fact, the last word there in the Hebrew is darkness. Some translations even render this, darkness is my closest friend. Now, it might seem odd to you to speak about uh, darkness as a friend or a companion, unless you're a, a big Simon and Garfunkel fan. Hello, darkness, my old friend. But you see, what this tells us is that the psalmist feels utterly abandoned, abandoned by his friends, abandoned by God, and the only thing that he knows is darkness. It's the feeling of being totally and utterly alone. And that's the end of the psalm, hopelessness, abandonment. And friends, I want you to take note of something. This darkness and this abandonment that the psalmist describes is what Christ suffered on the cross for our sake. This psalm speaks not only about human suffering, but about Christ's suffering. In fact, throughout the history of the church, uh, Psalm 22 and Psalm 88 were read together and, and linked together in the scripture reading on Good Friday. Psalm 22, of course, is the famous psalm uh, that contains Jesus' Jesus's cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Imagine that, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, God with us in the flesh, uttered a prayer of desperation, what we see, like what we see here in Psalm 88. And this was not because Christ simply felt abandoned. Christ Jesus did not simply pray this because he only seemed, as it were, to suffer. No, Christ was truly forsaken for us. He suffered the wrath of God poured out upon him on the cross. He drank the cup that we could not drink. He endured the shame. He was humiliated so that, we, so that he might be exalted and we exalted with him. And you know what's interesting is that right before Jesus uttered this cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gospel of Mark tells us a very key detail. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 right before this cry of dereliction. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now this is not a random detail that is included here for us in the text by the uh, writer Mark. Mark is alerting us to the ethical nature of darkness. Why is there darkness in the first place? Why does the kind of suffering that we see in Psalm 88 exist? Well, big picture, this is the result of sin, the sin of our first parents that resulted in the curse, the sin that plunged us into an estate of misery and despair. Darkness and suffering are a result of the fall. And as the Gospel of Mark points out for us, Jesus' suffering becomes the very manifestation of darkness as it were. The kingdom of darkness is opposed to the kingdom of light. 
We know about the spiritual dimension of darkness. When the Apostle John speaks about the incarnation of Jesus Christ in his prologue, we read that in him, speaking of Christ, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then a few verses later, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. You see, Jesus came as the light to conquer darkness. Darkness is a feeling as we see described in Psalm 88. It is the feeling of abandonment and hopelessness. But darkness is also more than that. Darkness is representative of sin and of death. It is representative of the kingdom of darkness, the serpent who is seeking to thwart God's purposes. And how does God in the flesh conquer darkness? Well, he does so by subjecting himself to darkness, by submitting his will unto the Father. He overcomes darkness through experiencing darkness on the cross. And as the true light who gives light to all who believe, Christ blinds darkness with the radiant light of the gospel. The light of the gospel now shines brightly in all who believe. Now, relating uh, Psalm 88 to Christ's experience of darkness on the cross is also significant for us in another sense. So not only did, did Christ just experience and overpower darkness, but he did so as our elder brother, the one who was tempted like us in every respect and yet without sin. Listen to this from the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. The fact that Christ experienced darkness on the cross and abandonment means that he sympathizes with us in our darkness. He knows what it's like. He's been through it. And we're told that that we should have confidence that because of this, we can ask for help. We can cry out to God. Even when we're utterly alone and feeling helpless, we know that our high priest has suffered far greater on our behalf. Now, how does Psalm 88 fit into the grand narrative of the Christian life? As Christians, we know the beginning and the end of our story. We know that God created us, that in this life we experience sorrow. We know that he will call us home to himself uh, and that in his presence we will experience fullness of joy. But Psalm 88 doesn't really give us that total picture that I just described. It's, it's half the picture. Psalm 88 ends with darkness, not hope. The question is, do, do we need to complete the picture for the psalmist? Is, is Psalm 88 an, an incomplete view of the Christian life? Is it, is it a defeatist view, if you will, of the Christian life? 
And brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that we need not complete this psalm. Here's a quote on the end of Psalm 88 that I discovered while studying this passage. I think you'll find it very fitting. It goes like this. It is, of course, easy to quote other passages from the Psalms and the Bible in general to affirm that this cannot be the final word on God's providence. True. But... This psalm is the witness of one who could as yet see no light at the end of his dark tunnel. There are people today nurtured within the Christian tradition who, through debilitating illness of body or mind or as a result of personal tragedy, find themselves in the same dark tunnel. In other words, though we have the complete picture of our beginning and end in Jesus Christ. Psalm 88 gives us a way to pray when we cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. Even though the entire Bible speaks of the glories that await us in the heavenly places, Psalm 88 gives us words of supplication to offer even when we cannot fathom the hope of glory. Psalm 88 is a template of prayer for us as we walk through dark times. And as we come to a close this evening, I want to leave uh, you with three ways, I think, in which Psalm 88 ought to impact us and form the life of our church. Every church has a culture, right? Tenth, we at Tenth have a church culture. And I hope that this psalm shapes that culture If you remember the the heading of the psalm, it's called a psalm, a song, and the Hebrew word there, maskil, meaning for our instruction. And even though Psalm 88 is the prayer of an individual suffering, this psalm is meant for the church, the body of believers. This is for our instruction. And as a church, we are to be moved to compassion by this psalm. This psalm finds an anchor in the biblical command in the book of Romans to weep with those who weep. At times when someone is experiencing darkness like the darkness that is described in Psalm 88, we may be quick within the church, within the walls here at 10th to even gloss over their pain and suffering. Like Job's friends, uh, we might be tempted to tell them that their suffering is a result of sin in their life. But even if we have the whole picture, we must take care to truly grieve with those who are grieving. And that's the first thing, is to weep with those who weep. Some in our congregation, they grieve because they can't have children even though they've pleaded with the Lord. Others grieve the loss of a loved one who died too early, and it seems as though God's purpose in all of it is hidden. Some of us in our church mourn the trauma and the abuse uh, abuse that they have suffered at the hands of people who they were supposed to be able to trust. They wonder to themselves, how could God allow this to happen? Some in our congregation mourn that God has not provided them with a spouse. 
They've pursued the Lord, but he has not provided for them. Others suffer over a crippling health diagnosis. Daily pain immobilizes them from participating in basic activities. Many of us suffer, and many of us suffer alone and in silence. And the question is, will you weep with those who weep? Will you mourn with the brokenhearted? Even though you know the spiritual truth that Christ will wipe away every tear at the end of the age, will you listen and will you walk through the valley of the shadow of death with a fellow brother or sister in the Lord? The second thing is this, is that the psalm teaches that the experience of darkness in the life of the Christian is not a sign of weak faith. It is possible that someone who is weak in their faith can experience dark times as a result of their sin, but the experience of suffering and darkness does not automatically mean that someone has weak faith. And, and perhaps you think this is obvious, but you'd be surprised how many of us in the church uh, just assume that depression or suffering or darkness is the result of weak faith. Oh, you just need to believe more. You just need to trust more. You just need to seek Jesus more. When we say things like like these things to people, like 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 the person suffering in Psalm 88, we are essentially pretending to know the secrets of God. We are playing the role of God, pretending to know the reasons behind God's providence. And in fact, going back to the irony of this psalm, we realize that the psalmist has a strong faith. The psalmist is praying to the God of his salvation, even though he says God does not hear his prayers. If he truly believes that God is not hearing his prayers, then why is he still praying? The answer is faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, says the writer of Hebrews. If you were to counsel the psalmist after reading this and and say to him, you've got to believe more, and you would be no different than Job's friends. And you know what God said to Job's friends? In Job 42, God says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Job's friends told him that his darkness was a sin issue in his life. And God chastises Job's friends, and he commends Job for his faith. Now the third thing is a promise. In heaven... Darkness will be no more. And it is possible that in this life, that darkness may be your closest friend unto death. That is possible. It's possible for a believer to experience suffering or, dis- or despair, either bodily, mentally, spiritually, until God calls them home. But this is the promise. That well our flesh wastes away Christ will raise us up in the last day if we but trust in him with the kind of faith that we see in Psalm 88. 
The faith of one who cries out to the Lord day and night. We eagerly await the redemption of our bodies and our lives are but a small glimpse of, of, of that which is to come. And if you're experiencing darkness now, I pray that our congregation would come alongside, alongside you, weep with you, mourn with you. And may God give us grace as a congregation to have eyes to see the needs in our midst, to come alongside those who can only see darkness. Let's pray together. Lord, in the face of darkness, we ask that you would give us hearts that trust you. Even when we want to turn inward and barricade ourselves off from you and from your people, would you grant us strength, frail though we are. And Lord, as the body of Christ, let us love those who suffer. May those who suffer know your eternal comfort that awaits them, even though they may not experience it in this life. We thank you for Christ, that he endured a darkness and abandonment that no mere human being could ever know. We rejoice that he drank the cup that we could not and that he paid the penalty for sin and death on our behalf. Make us more like Christ, we pray. And may we find comfort knowing that he knows our sufferings and our despair. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.